Hey, it's Greg Brady. It's the Bill Kelly Podcast for Thursday, July the 30th. While we did a lot on education today, by now, as you're listening to this, the province of Ontario has put out their uh, education plan and, and let it be known what they're expecting and what they're anticipating for you. If you're a teacher, for you, if you've got children headed to school, be it secondary or elementary. We talked to Ryan Imgrund, who's a high school teacher, but also a statistician. And we talked to uh, Andrew Morris as well, who works for U of T as a doctor there. So we've got a lot to cover about that and some of the recommendations that they're expecting to see, hoping they see, and recommending against, to be perfectly honest. There's a lot of people already saying we're concerned about elementary schools not making masks mandatory for teachers or students. Both weigh in on that. A big day, obviously, for Justin Trudeau. Henry Jasek from McMaster University weighs in on that uh, and where it goes from here and whether the Liberal Party and especially the MPs are watching this very, very concerned about what transpires and whether Justin Trudeau can, if you will, read the room properly a little later on today. And we talked about the new uh, Port of Peak mass shooting decision that there will be a public inquiry. As opposed to a panel review board, a public inquiry should get more information. It will last longer. It will be more costly, but it makes sense that it's going ahead. Lawyer Robert Pineo will join us. He represents many of the victims in a class action lawsuit against the killer's estate. And Lenora Zan will join us as well, uh, one of the MPs that pushed for a public inquiry. Very hard, as a matter of fact. She's the MP from Cumberland, Colchester. All that's coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast for this Thursday. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Our next guest uh, joins us, and, and he helped contribute to the uh, the Sick Kids Report, made some great recommendations, and he's been a great uh, find and follow on Twitter as well. He's a high school science uh, head and as well uh, works in Newmarket uh, at South Lake Hospital. Biostatistician Ryan Imgrin. That's not actually on a business card because you're wearing a lot of hats. Sorry, is biostatistician on your business card? It's one of the few things on my business card, yes. <laughs> Not a phone number or an ad. No, nowhere, no way people can reach you, but just no what way, you do. Only, That's only Twitter, I guess, at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that lends to uh, gives people some privacy. How did? Let me ask you from the start in March. Um, you know, there's a lot of lot of people, and and we've had a lot of them on the show. Whether it's David Fisman or obviously Isaac Bogach, who've who've gotten out and made a lot of media appearances. You're starting to do a lot more. When you started this in March and April. Um, were you fascinated by the numbers? Were you fascinated by sort of the, the stats and the demographics of it? Because a, a lot of your information and recommendations have been really helpful, and they've, they've assisted people. Yeah, it was the numbers earlier on that, um, you know, we were sort of wondering how bad things would get. Because at the time that things started to pick up steam here, China seemed to stop at around 75,000, 80,000 cases. And if you look at the curve, I saw that curve, and I'm like, you know what, we could probably model this curve for Ontario as well. Um, so I started doing that. Like, you know, put the data out um, and then a few newspapers picked it up. South Lake Hospital picked it up um, and then it just kind of captured steam from there. So when you get back to school, will there be uh, kids that now uh, follow you on social media that did not before? Like you got to like you'll have students that that see you and recognize you from social media, which is rare for a teacher, I think. Yes, then students and their parents. I've had a, <laughs> a bunch of parents also reach out to me, too, and, you know, say that, you know, their student will be going to the school that I'm the teaching at in September, which is always interesting. Oh, yeah. Do I so do I have that right off the top? I mentioned like I, I just I think we can't ask school board uh, trustees and principals to to make promises that they just can't keep. I, I don't think restaurants can make promises. I, don't, I, I sure know gyms uh, when they reopen, even even slightly modified, won't be able to make promises to people about uh, no infections. It's just how do we keep the risk low? How do we react when there is a case or several? Exactly. Your intro is dead on. It's all about risk mitigation there is no way that you can eliminate the risk it is impossible and i think from the start many many people their philosophy was if we lock everything down if we all stay inside if we never leave our house we can just get rid of this it's not possible to get rid of because of the nature of the virus yeah, that's 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 the biggest factor. Um, the Sick Kids Report. Um, I read the first one, and uh, I, I'm honestly not through the second one, but I know I, I know there's um there, there's a there's they're in concert a little bit there, and that's made some critics of the of the provincial government skeptical about the validity of the report. You you see a lot more merit, don't you, Ryan, in this second report that came out this week that may influence to some extent 
what Minister Lecce says today. Um, but d- did the first one deserve to be criticized as much? It just it just seemed to have a lot of holes. Uh, epidemiologists poked a lot of holes in some of the logic and talked about more the mental state of kids, but not the practical state of, of keeping them, uh, and, and as you note, mitigating the risk of sending kids back. It was just more, we got to get them back no matter what. For sure, and that's exactly it. And I think that first report had a lot of holes in it. In fact, I was very, very vocal about it, which was why I was a bit surprised when Sick has actually reached out to me to like, provide some input, because I was extremely vocal about some of the stuff that they said in the first report. They were really against masking fully for everyone in the whole entire first report. They also grouped together students that were in like kindergarten with students from grade 12. And you just need to separate those kids out, which I think this report has done. Yeah. Ryan Ingram is our guest. Ingram, our guest. Uh, we're talking to him uh, from New Market today, science teacher, biostatistician. So, can you lay out the recommend? What was your recommendation on masks? And you do you differ from the report in them saying only for high school and over? There's obviously a lot of concerned parents of primary school kids that's that that may send their kid if they send them at all. Ryan, they may send them with masks and say you keep this on. It, it doesn't matter if it's mandatory or not. You're going to school with a mask on because you're going into Walmart for ten minutes with a mask on. You're certainly going somewhere where you're going to sit all day for the better part of six hours. And that exactly was my argument. It's the fact that right now we have 31 of 34 Ontario public health units that have mandatory indoor masking bylaws. I don't know why schools would be any different. The other thing too is that these these indoor bylaws apply to like buildings where a maximum capacity is 50 or less. If we have a full return to school where all students are inside of that school, every school is going to have more than 50 students in it. So therefore, if it was a shopping mall, if it was a, a restaurant, if it was a gym or anything else, they would have to wear a mask. I don't know why a school is any different. Well, and you write, and, and this is part of what, what you submitted, uh, if a student tests positive for COVID-19 at the high school level, all four teachers will have to self-isolate for 14 days if they aren't masked. S- to keep teachers working and students learning, sick kids must, at the minimum, mandate teachers be masked in high school and provided with two pieces of PPE per day because we're going to have a serious domino effect if uh, if we've got a, you know a case or two, and really, I, I don't think I don't think it's logical to suggest. Well, every time we get a case at a, at a high school or elementary school, Ryan, the whole school is shut down 14 days. We may as well not do it because we're going to get cases. Right, and that's why we have to go with cohorts. And what I mean by like cohorts is we have to minimize the number of individuals that students have contact with each day. I think optimally, if we send students back, if they were with one teacher in one group each and every single day, at least if someone in that group came down with something, you could just keep the whole group off and just move them to online learning for the next two weeks. If we have these students cycling through another three classes, they're in contact with three more teachers. Those teachers are in in contact with a whole nother grade of students. And all of a sudden that one case has been exposed to almost the entire school population. You make a really interesting point about supply teachers, and it's a little like the point I think most parents will, will get it, snap their finger right away when they hear this in their car or at home and, and understand what you mean by it. But it's it's a little like what we needed, what we were way too late on in our province with uh, workers visiting different long-term care centers. Uh, we've got to standardize it and minimize exposure and minimize travel between schools. Lay out what your thought is on supply teachers that I really hope the province says absolutely that's that's going to happen. Yeah, so actually when I suggested that to uh, like sick kids, they didn't have supply teachers mentioned anywhere in that document at all. So that sounds right. terrible right there. That's a, that's a huge oversight not to talk about it because teachers are going to get sick regularly or need a day off for a personal issue uh, t- tons of times, right? 100%. And I think what's important is that if we just attempt to limit these supply teachers to every school, if we make the call out to those supply teachers assigned to that school first, and then, yeah, once we need more teachers at the school, then we can look elsewhere. But the first priority should be to get those teachers that are from that school, that are supply teaching at that school, back in the school. It just makes things a you know, whole lot easier than if we have a um, supply teacher who over the span of two weeks has gone to five or ten schools. Then all of a sudden they get a case mm-hmm. and then you've got to shut down entire schools because you have one infected individual.
Biostatistician Ryan, in, uh, Ryan Imgren is our guest. Last thing for you, uh, I want to ask you about you. You laid out the, the fourth point, which, again, I hope gets mentioned a ton today, and, and I hope it gets uh, taken in context. Uh, what would facilitate, what would precipitate uh, a school closing and saying the numbers, again, one or two cases, we, we just can't do it. Um, but what what what's sort of the database that we'd say we do need to close this school and we need to we need to make sure re- students return again with a with a lack of uh, less risk and we need to close it for a few days if not longer. That is a fantastic question because even asking sick kids, they weren't sure either because what we have not done is we have not defined what an exposure actually is. So my issue now is is that if we don't mandate masks on staff and students going back in, and if staff don't have to wear masks. If anyone in their class is sick and we only have one meter of uh, social distancing, that is technically exposure to every single person. And it technically means that all those people have to go home. But if we mm-hmm. don't you know, set up a system where we have students in the exact same group, it would mean that, unfortunately, you would have to send home the whole entire school if we have one case, if we don't set this up properly from the start. And that's why this afternoon's announcement is so important. It's so important. Yeah, uh, I think we'll all be hanging on every word. Ryan, thanks very much for the time. Uh, it's great to make your acquaintance. Uh, I hope we can do this again. I wish I was in your class in the fall, but I don't like it to be. I'd be like Rodney Dangerfield in back to school. I think it would be so obvious that I'm, you know, I, I like Johnny Depp went back to school for 21 Jump Street. But I think he was like, I'm not Johnny. De- not, I'm certainly not Johnny Depp now, but not Johnny Depp when he was 26. It wouldn't be a good idea, but I hope it goes well for you. Thanks. And thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You got it. Uh, Ryan Ingram. Uh, Let's pivot and talk to Andrew Morris about this Sick Kids document as well and what his expectations are. Uh, He's an ID physician as well. And notes on his Twitter, COVID-19 hater. So we've got something in common. Uh, Dr. Morris, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for making the time. Pleasure. Uh, Tell me, we were talking about some aspects of the Sick Kids document with regard to school. Um, and, And I asked our previous guest, what the difference he found was between the first document they put out about four or five weeks ago and this one. It, this is getting, if if you if you if I can put it this way, better reviews. This is more critically acclaimed. There's less holes in it. There's and we're obviously closer to September, so we needed that, didn't we? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think there's anything probably more important to our society functioning at the moment than getting. Uh, kids in school and, and freeing up uh, parents at the same time. What's some of the guidance in the document um, that impresses you that uh, that you hope gets uh, that becomes applicable today, and that school boards will will take at face value and say that is how we have to have to pull this off in the fall? Yeah, well, I, I think the most important thing is um, looking at this as a really a broad plan that. You, and there are different steps along the way of how to reduce risk and recognizing that you can't get to zero risk, mm-hmm. but, our, but your goal is really to, as much as reasonably possible, um, minimize risk and recognize that, you know, most people don't really understand risk, but there's, we take on a variety of risks throughout our, our, our life and, and almost every day. And this is a way of, as much as possible, mitigating risk and also recognizing that some interventions are less effective than others, right? And so certainly keeping people who are sick out of the school is going to be the most effective way to prevent disease transmission. And actually the least effective, but what gets the most attention are personal protective equipment. And you know, I think understanding that there's really a, a whole uh, hierarchy of ways of controlling disease. And unfortunately, most people focus on the least effective aspects, and it's really the most effective um, ones that we should be focusing on. I think, you, Andrew Morris, our guest, uh, I think you brought up something interesting there, and it's simply that, and, and I mentioned it off the top too, there's no there's no safe or unsafe now. Not until we get a vaccine. There's there's low risk, lower risk and higher risk. And as you said, we're navigating things every day and saying that last hour I put myself in more risk than I did the previous six, but I, I have to be I have to be okay with it, or there's something I risked that I wouldn't do again. Parents can't I, I want to make sure administrators and education don't make false promises and say, We've checked and your school is safe. There's not going to be any way to guarantee that to parents in September or October. No, absolutely. Right. And, you know, most parents allow their kids to ride a bike. 
right? Mm-hmm. And there's a risk with riding a bike. There's also going to be risks of how you get kids to school, whether you say, okay, I don't want them on a bus because, you know, they're going to contract a disease on a bus. So I want them to ride their bike to school. And then there's an additional risk related to riding your bike to school. So, you know, we have to start learning how to communicate risk better to, I think, the public, especially parents here. Um, and I would also include, um, you know, staff at schools. And there are many things that we can do to make everything safer. The, the, way, to, the way we make riding to school safer is we have dedicated protected bike lanes. That makes it safer for kids to ride to school. Right. Similarly, there are ways to make school safer, and we need to make sure that we keep our eye on the goal, which is make it as safe as possible, but um, still have ideally functioning schools. How how regional um, do you expect recommendations to be? Um, again, I you know when we talk with other parents, it's very much they should be open, they should be closed. I'm confident, I'm not, but it's so much based on on our data and and where we are geographically and, and demographically, quite obviously. Absolutely, I think um, almost certainly what should happen is that guidance around how schools function should to some degree be related to the epidemiology. If you're in an area where there is zero COVID and there hasn't been any COVID in a long time, then the measures that you have to take immediately to reduce risk are negligible. Anything you do isn't going to make a difference because Mm -hmm. you're not going to get it lower than zero and you're not going to have transmission in the school where there are no kids with COVID. On the other hand, you know, Hamilton, London, all the Toronto, all the urban centers, it it becomes a lot different, right? Because uh, we've seen more cases um, in those areas. And because of that, um, the schools need to at least be prepared for uh, rises in cases. And almost certainly they should have those up front because we know that those are going to be the places where cases are going to rise. Andrew Morris, kind enough to join us, professor of medicine at uh, U of T, medical director of the Sinai Health System uh, and UHN anti-microbial stewardship program. I want to ask about being outside. We've all felt more comfortable doing outdoor activities. Um, I will tell you, my kids back at soccer practice, uh, there are parents that won't put their kids in hockey and basketball in the fall because it's indoor and there's more likelihood of transmission. Should schools take advantage of whatever half-decent weather we get in September and October. Um, I know in the States, we're, we're carving up the U.S. left and right and, and, with, and with validity sometimes, but there are states planning uh, tents, like open-ended tents, uh, that will allow for learning to be outside whenever possible in a, in a bearable climate. Should we be doing any of that in September and October in Ontario? Oh, I think so. Um, it's complicated, of course. Um, the, how you uh, educate kids uh, is different uh, outdoors than indoors, um, and you know what facilities you have. You got to deal with the bathrooms also, um, and uh, access to water fountains, etc. So it is very different. Um, but in terms of safety, we know that um, being outside or having very open ventilated spaces is is ideal. You know, there's a school uh, right near uh, where my office is, which is at Mount Sinai Hospital, and right next to it is the Ord Street School, which used to be a TB sanatorium. And I've got an old photo from like 100 years ago where all the kids are indoors um, wearing winter clothing, but that's because they kept all the windows open in the sanatorium for these very purposes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there is... there. various ways to deal with ventilation and making things, if not outdoors, even more like outdoors that we need to start considering as well. I know you'll be watching with tremendous interest. Thanks for your contributions uh, to the document. Thank you for your contributions uh, to this show, Andrew. I greatly appreciate it. Pleasure. Andrew Morris, professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When you're acting that quickly, something is going to get through. A mistake is going to be made. Something will get through that should not have. And certainly the Prime Minister should have recused himself. The Minister of Finance should have recused himself. But they did not, and they'll have to continue to answer questions about that. That's London Liberal MP Peter Fragiscatos. He's on the Finance Committee, knows full well. Uh, His kind of boss, 
Justin Trudeau has to answer these questions today about bringing uh, the We Charity in to run what was deemed at the time a critical program. No question time was of the essence, but we've learned a lot now. And when it was uh, now can't now that it's been canceled, now that we realized um, there wasn't a competitive bid structure, um, there's a lot there. And I, I also think this has this has been escalated by the Kielbergers uh, the other day. I just don't think there's any question. I know they're not politicians. But their uh, performance and their uh, their theater, um, you know, sort of the, how they sort of laid themselves bare and made themselves the the victim in this case uh, infuriated an awful lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum. It's Greg Brady and for Bill Kelly, by the way, 10 o'clock hour. Uh, very pleased to be joined by our next guest. We've talked about him before. Want to get his read on what's a pretty unique day in Canadian politics. Henry J. Six, professor of political science at the exceptional McMaster University. <laughs> Professor Jacek, how are you? Just great, Greg. Yeah, good to hear your voice again. Let me uh, let me get a sense as to if there is historical precedent for this. Um, you know, we, we obviously saw Bill Clinton testify in 1998 uh, in a perjury trial under very, very different circumstances. But I can't... Look, we've had our share of scandals, um, but a lot of the times, whether it's patronage appointments or um, Brian Mulroney in the Airbus, it's long after a prime minister uh, or a sitting head of state in other countries has left that particular office, isn't it? Yes, uh, I think in this particular case, I mean, the, the, the prime minister is basically trying to put out a fire. Uh, he's So he's he's probably been advised at this point he's got to go and face this committee and essentially put out a credible defense of his position with the appropriate apologies uh, and hope that it goes away. So uh, I think that's the advice he's probably getting, and he's taken it. And uh, he also, you know, is in a special position, relatively special position here. He has a minority government, mm-hmm. and he, he just can't do what he wants to do with the House of Commons. He doesn't have a majority there. So he, he, he basically has to bend with the, uh, with the uh, criticism and try to defuse it. So he's in the middle of a forest fire, and he's hoping he can put it out. Um, the biggest question that people have, and I think this infuriates people who, who voted for him once and twice, uh, is, is they want him to be able to, quote-unquote, uh, read the room, Henry. They want to mm. see a level of accountability, a level of, um, you know, uh, n- not necessarily that he's, garnering public sympathy but that he gets it and 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 it struck me i don't know what your read on the keelbergers was but that didn't seem like um they they succeeded in either department that they got it understood why they were there and that there was any level of public empathy for them they just seemed they seemed smarmy as many described Mm -hmm. it and that's a harsh word uh, and a very good word okay (laughs) and you uh, you know that you said they're not politicians but they are political animals they have been, since they were young kids, they picked up on how po- the dynamics of politics works, particularly how politics works behind the scenes. And they, are, they, they were masterful in what they were doing up until now, until this whole thing blew up. But they were, uh, you know, very impressive young men in terms of understanding how, how, things, how things go behind the scenes. And they had developed, uh, you know, the ability to deal with senior civil servants, which is very important, and this is a part of the story that really needs to come out, uh, and how to, how to uh, basically, you know, get politicians on their side uh, by essentially, you know, uh, fun, trying to funneling money to people who are close to them that will make the politicians happy, and uh, but hopefully won't uh, raise eyebrows. But unfortunately, when it did come out, it did raise eyebrows. So the thought on on Trudeau, I think, among some, um, is that is that he's got a, a few two yes men and women around him, and um, the, again, the reading of the room, um, you know, the, the, the sort of self observation uh, and self reflection uh, just isn't there to where if if you you know like there's nothing like working with colleagues who who will check you once in a while. I mentioned that yesterday. It's the great thing. Great marriages, the partners check each other a lot, and they go. I'm here for you, but I'm not sure you are for me right now. And it's a tennis match sometimes, and then you get back on the right track. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of political uh, pundits who think Trudeau has that, um, how how would I put it, has that infrastructure, Henry. What would you say? Well, I think that is a very important point that you're making. Uh, Politicians need, the highest politicians need people around, in the background, who are going to tell him the truth, to give him 
you know, they have to speak, as, as you know, the old saying, uh, you have to speak truth to power mm-hmm. when you're in that position. You have to say, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, I know you want to do this. I know this is going to make you feel very good, but this is a dangerous thing. This is something that's not likely to turn out well. Uh, it's not in the public interest, and people are likely to see this. And maybe you ought to give a think a second thought about this, or you give a third thought, a fourth thought, and let let's let's talk about this. And the problem is, once you have a you know a, a popular and dynamic uh, prime minister, you know, to the very popular and dy- dynamic about uh, seen to the people all around him. So, and he's been in office for five years, so there's a tendency to defer. And the longer he's in office, the more he seems like he's invincible. And people want to make him happy. And that's true not only for his political staff, and I know some of the people there in his political staff, uh, they, you know, very good people, but what, you know, I don't know what they told him mm-hmm. uh, before he said he was going to go along with this plan. Uh, that's one thing we don't know. I don't know how hard it is going to be to figure out what kind of advice he was getting from them. But also, the senior civil servants, who whose job it is to basically, when a when a private their political masters come to them and they want to do something foolish, they normally tell them, "Well, this is not in the long run interest of the country." Then they give their their courageous advice. But at the end of the day, they have to basically give in to their political masters, that's the prime minister and the cabinet. And as time goes along, they learn to read. And I've, I've seen this because I've been a, I've been a lobbyist at Queen's Park. Yeah. And, uh, and one thing that surprised me when I began the whole thing is how these senior civil servants that I was lobbying and coming up with great plans of what they ought to do and make tremendous amount of sense to me, and they, they they very quickly could tell tell me what things their the cabinet and the uh, their their the premier in this case in Ontario would uh, would would would, buy, would mm. be open to and what he wouldn't be open to, and I think that's true at the federal level as well. So these senior civil servants basically know the mind of the you know the prime minister so well they start doing things that he doesn't even have to talk to them. But they, they're acting, they're, they're so much into his head, they're acting the way he would want to do things. Because they want, you know, they yeah. want to be popular with the prime minister, and they want to do his bidding, and they want to make him feel good. And they, they've simply become less and less those uh, the civil servants they ought to be, and they become more and more uh, like uh, people who are trying to advance his, polit- his political career. Yeah, Henry Jasek, our guest, polit- professor of political science at MAC. Um, it's I want to ask about liberal MPs in a sec um, and and how they'll be observing today. But I, but I'd ask you about the uh, the NDP because you know my theory is that Jugmeet Singh and, and the New Democrats they took a they took a whomping last election. They fell uh, from 39 seats to 24. Popular vote dropped. But they're still the power brokers here, more so even than, than the block. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I think the NDP likes where they are, and I kind of think they like Justin Trudeau where he is. I don't doubt Jugmeet Singh and the New Democrats, Henry, are disappointed. But I, I liken it to where, where say, Bob Ray was when uh, he and David Peterson had the coalition government. He kind of liked his spot uh, and, and was able to work. Not that he's uh, Singh's about to become the next prime minister like Ray became premier, mm-hmm. but he likes having the, the sway of influence. And he loses that if we have a conservative uh, minority government, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Well, he – well – the problem is, I, I think it'd be hard to figure out how you'd have a conservative minority, minority government because all the other parties up at, up at uh, Parliament are basically don't like the conservatives. So, <laughs> your 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 government's going to come out of the middle and and the left side. You know, when you talk about the block, but they could win the next election. The, 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 like with the right person, they. I mean, this they could easily win the next election in a minority government in four years, couldn't they? Well, um, it uh, it really would depend on. Uh, how you know how how the leader of the, I assume the next election if if we had a situation where the conservatives have more votes than than the liberals it would just but the the NDP and the Bloc and the Greens would say well we really don't like the conservatives they're far too right for us we we really want the liberals in but we want you to do what we want you to do, right? And then it's really all up to the liberal leader at the time, the the, the defeated leader. And if that person sort of says, "Okay, I'll swallow hard and keep mm-hmm. my party in office, and I'll give you know the the opposition uh, a lot of what they want to stay in power, and maybe in a couple years I can I, I can come back, 
or, or the person may give up at that time. We, mm. Oftentimes, the leaders give up. I mean, Paul Martin gave up uh, after the, when Harper won his first minority government. We saw the liberals famously give up after they had Harper on the ropes in late 2008. Yes. He had a, he, he, you know, they, they had a, a government all set up to replace him. Harper gets the, uh, you know, the governor general to let him, uh, you know, uh, get re- close down parliament for a while in a very unusual situation. And by the time he came back, as the liberals all gave up and said, we, you know, we don't want to, we, you know, we don't want to take power under these kind of conditions. So it really, mm-hmm. it's really up to what the the leader, how much do they want to fight on at that point? So I, I, I don't know what will happen there. I, I mm-hmm. would, I still, I mean, I, I would really think that maybe. Trudeau would still fight on more, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, no, and, and even this, look, this everything in 2020 has been hard to predict. Um, yeah, but yeah. so was it. We didn't think we'd start the year with this the terrible plane crash uh, and the tragedy in Iran with, with right. the plane getting shot down. And obviously he he looked helpless in, in that situation. Remember, the blockades were the biggest story in the country for about six right. days. And right. now nothing. I want to ask you about, about liberal MPs. If you're a liberal member of parliament and you're watching this today, you know, again, it's very difficult to to step out. You can do it in the states. You can step out and criticize Bill Clinton if you're a Democrat, and right. and and it, it happened a lot more with Republican presidents before Donald Trump. There were people critical of Reagan for this, or critical of Bush Senior or Junior. But if you're watching this today, um, you know, what are your expectations? Because I, I would guess, it, it, come back to the province, there would have been liberal MPPs, Henry, watching Kathleen Wynne you know, stumble and struggle and stumble mm-hmm. and struggle the last and going, this is going to cost me my job. There must be liberal MPs watching this today going, please get it. Please read the room today. Yeah. Well, the thing is, Trudeau, I mean, as long as he ha- keeps the, you know, he has a, the, the cabinet is completely with him. And we have a tradition uh, here in Canada, which is not necessarily part of the parliamentary tradition, is that, uh, you know, if you disagree with the, uh, with the premier or the prime minister, uh, you're you're sent out to the you know Siberia. I yes. mean, we we've seen it in Ontario. You know, we had one person who worried about this legislation that that Ford had brought in, and obviously the the legislation was going to go through, and immediately, boom, that person's kicked out of the caucus. Uh, that that's not necessary, and but we do have, unfortunately, we have developed that tradition in Canada. You can go in Britain, uh, where well, we imitated those institutions. That doesn't happen. I remember about 10, 15 years ago, I was inter- you know, interviewing people over at the British Parliament, and I was talking to the deputy whip of the, li- of the Labour Party. They were in party at that to- uh, power at that time, and he said, look down on Parliament Square. He had an office, look right mm-hmm. down. And there were all sorts of protesters against the Iraq war and saying Blair is a, tra- a traitor and all this sort of stuff. And he said, 25 of the Labour MPs are down there with those signs. But they weren't kicked out of the Labour Party. <laughs> uh, Blair had a, a majority of a hundred, so he let these twenty-five, you know, extreme left-wingers just parade around Parliament Square, uh, saying these things and making life difficult for the whips. Uh, but the the Labour whips. But the, the the government carried on. But we don't. Ha- unfortunately, we don't have that tradition. We 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 have. You know, you either got to be with the go- you know the Prime Minister, or the Premier. You. You know, and if you're not with them all the time, you're out. You're out of the caucus. You're sent. You know, you're sent uh, out 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 of heaven. So yeah, uh, that that's an unfortunate tradition that we have. And uh, you know, they don't have that in the U.S. Of course, we we have uh, in the U.S. We have had a lot of times when when in fact uh, party loyalty has been you know not a hundred percent. But even under the Trump times, we have you know a few people who you know a few senators who've gone against. Uh, you know, the, the Trump uh, uh, and, uh, you know, Trump was very angry at him, but they weren't kicked out of the uh, Republican caucus in the Senate. Well, it's funny. Anthony Fury was on the Toronto Sun yesterday with me, and, and he's an ardent Trudeau critic. But at the same time, he said something that resonates. And, and I thought this was the case when I went to university. He said the Canadian prime minister, if he or she holds a majority government, they they wield some of the most considerable power in any elected country on the planet, way more so than in the United States. You got to have you got to have huge majorities in Congress and the Senate, and mm-hmm. even then, some people in your own party will speak out against you because of something to do with regionality, or it could be 
church and a church and state issue, right? Um, mm-hmm. th- there's th- like you think about the power that Brian Mulroney had after the majority in 1984. Yeah, the power uh, that Trudeau had when he wrestled away from Joe Clark. Like you can you can do anything, and no one in your own party is going against you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and if they do go against you, you, that person gets kicked out. Yeah. Example to everybody else. And, of course, the person I like to quote, I like to go a little farther back, and uh, the, the present prime minister's father, who was a prime minister, and some, uh, a reporter asked him the question, wouldn't you rather be uh, the president of the United States and have a lot more power than being prime minister of Canada? And, of course, they were mixing up domestic and foreign policy, and Trudeau came back, the elder Trudeau came back and said, I'd much rather be the Prime Minister of Canada than the President of the United States. The Prime Minister of Canada has a lot more power over his government than the President of the United States does. Mm. That's very true, very true. Uh, Henry, loved our chat today. I know you'll be watching this afternoon. Thanks for your insight previewing it for us. Okay, enjoy your show, Greg. You got it. Dr. Henry uh, Jasek joining us uh, from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You got to recognize what transpired in April in Nova Scotia is still chilling. It's still, uh, again, in in the midst of everything that seems to come at us, left, right, and center, in the year 2020. The, the you know the Iran plane shooting in January to this particular moment. Um, the deaths of 22 people. I was on the air at the end of last year, and it was the 30-year anniversary of the Ecole Polytechnique massacre. I was on the air that afternoon, and I was a high school student, and is all we talked about the next day in every class. And uh, what transpired in Halifax uh, deserves its due. Canadians deserve some answers. People in that community deserve some answers. So there has been uh, an about-face, and an inquiry will go ahead into the worst mass shooting in Nova Scotia history. Joining me on the line to uh, discuss uh, from Patterson Law, Robert Pineo is leading a class action lawsuit against the killer's estate, and we'll talk about the public inquiry. Robert, thanks very much for making the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. What was your reaction um, to, yeah, what I would describe as as an about-face? Usually something comes down like that. There's not going to be an inquiry, and uh, and people, you know, they're upset. They were disappointed. Victims' families were uh, quite concerned um, that they wouldn't get the answers they wanted. Um, what was your reaction to them doing a 180, uh, Bill Blair and the like, and saying, we'll do it after all? Yeah, we were quite surprised, uh, particularly that the about face came so quickly. Uh, we thought we would be lobbying for weeks, perhaps months, to um, convince the two levels of government to change their mind. Um, but, uh, yeah, we were absolutely thrilled. The family members cried. They were uh, they were in disbelief. And the, I was actually talking to um, to one of the family members when um, all of a sudden his phone blew up with incoming calls, and they were all media. Yeah. And I, I said we'd better we better cut off and uh, and let you take those. And then I started getting them at the same time as well. So it was uh, amazing news. Did did you have you, you mentioned it was going to be maybe an extensive lobbying period in terms of effort and, and in terms of uh, time on the calendar? Did you have some confidence um, that that they would decide to to launch a review panel? I, I was about fifty fifty on it. Um, our our local premier is uh, he's um, straight shooter mm-hmm. and he makes decisions and he usually sticks with them. Um, I, I didn't see him changing his mind on this. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy that he did, and I'm, I'm glad he had the strength to uh, the strength. He was strong enough to bend. I'm, I'm happy for that. What What are answers? A family member, a friend, uh, people suffering, people still grieving. Um, what are answers they can get from this process, from the process of an inquiry that they didn't feel they could get um, from simply a panel review? Uh, the difficulty with the panel review was the. Um, the mechanism to compel evidence. Uh, it was set up basically that the panel could ask um, people to come forward and give uh, information, but it wouldn't be sworn information. Um, the panel couldn't subpoena witnesses or subpoena documents from witnesses or organizations. So really it would be basically everybody coming in and telling their best story, and mm-hmm. a decision would have to come from that. Um, the public inquiry on the other hand, it's going to be much more like a courtroom, uh, you know, like a trial in a courtroom where um, the various parties can present their own evidence and we can test each other's evidence by cross-examination. Uh, we can impeach witnesses. Uh, we can ask for more documents and, and the 
uh, panel has the ability to subpoena further documents or hold them in contempt if they don't provide them. So mm. uh, it's a much more effective uh, uh, system having a public inquiry. Robert Pineo is our guest. He's representing uh, the vast majority of the families in a class action lawsuit against the killer's estate. I'd also ask, um, out of uh, out of you know respect the victims uh, victim statements, there is there isn't punishment that can be given here of a of a criminal. Um, of a criminal nature, um, the assailant is is dead. But if if this were if he were to be alive, this happens in murder trials. This happens in uh, assault trials, sexual assault trials. Um, people want to give their statement. They want they want to be heard about the pain that they have suffered and are continuing to suffer. Is is that a valuable part? Is it is that part of the process that will be there in a public inquiry that that wouldn't have been with a board? Um, that part I'm not actually 100% sure of. I, I think they would be able to give, uh, you know, sort of a victim impact at, at either of the two um, types mm-hmm. of inquiry. So uh, I don't know if that part has changed or not. Uh, certainly, you know, the families are going to be able to give their, um, you know, their their impact, uh, the impact that this has had on them in, in the class actions as well, because that becomes part of, you know, uh, of the compensation piece. So. Mm. How how is the community when you when you look around? We know that that area is tight knit. Anyone who's ever driven to Nova Scotia, flown to Nova Scotia, um, you know the province feels the province feels like everybody knows each other in a way. I, I, not that this would be obviously less significant a tragedy in a in a you know in a larger metropolis, um, but how has the community been able to? Again, in difficult circumstances, in the midst of a global pandemic, where the numbers have been excellent in Nova Scotia, but how have people been able to to come together, to unify, and to and to try and take steps forward? It's obviously been more difficult for some than others. Yeah, there's been a lot of social media interplay. Um, I know the families have a private families-only uh, Facebook page where they can share information and support one another. And those 22 families have really come together as a family. Um, you know, I see them at, at our meetings. You know, we, we, we generally meet outside in a private location because of, of the COVID restrictions, but mm-hmm. they all know each other by first name now. Uh, you know, they, they're highly supportive of, of one another. Um, they're always there if, if somebody is having a bad day or, or, you know, somebody has questions. You know, I know, for example, yesterday, uh, two of them just went for a drive because they were both having a bad day, and one of them said, "Look, let's just jump in the car and and talk things out." And you know that's that's how they've come together. But the community, the larger community, um, really has taken this hard. Yeah. And um, you know the community has supported the families. For example, we started the lobby to change the government's minds on on the form of inquiry. Um, a public Facebook page was set up, and it had 11,000 members in uh, in 30 hours. And you know that was that was a huge um, you know groundswell. Um, our local TV station here, CTV, does a nightly poll on any you know almost any topic. So uh, they usually get about 3,000 people calling in to uh, you know to register their votes on this issue when they put it before the public. Uh, there was 8,000, mm. you know, two and a half times the, you know, the, the former number, you know, and, and I think 92% in favor of a full public inquiry. So, you know, certainly the, the public has been, uh, you know, behind these families. I, I posted quite extensively in, in on Facebook. Usually if I post something of a legal nature, I get about a 50-50 split of people that, that like my comments or support them and, and the rest... Uh, Cynical and and uh, yeah. you know negative comments on this one. I I had about four thousand impressions and not one negative one. It was amazing. So. There has to be uh, that's incredible. There has to be some appreciation as well for the politicians. I, I know you know I, I don't think it would have been easy for for all the various MPs to raise their hands and say, well, there's nothing I can do. But they did just the opposite. Uh, we're going to talk to Lenora Zan in a, in a bit. Sean Fraser was active. Darren Fisher was active. Uh, a lot of these MPs, again, regardless of political affiliation or or who Nova Scotians would vote for, there must be a real sense of appreciation that in, in a busy political time, um, their voices mattered and made a difference here. Yeah, that's true. I, I know um, Sean Fraser has, has received a lot of uh, positive uh, comments from the families and from the supporters. He was sort of first out of the gate on that. He started lobbying the day after um, the announcement came out. Um, 
Lenore Zan, I, I felt held back, um, didn't come to the aid, and, and, and the vast majority of the victims were in her riding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I felt that she she didn't step up when she should have, and, and I'll tell her that you know to her face when I see her. Okay. But uh, I, I felt Sean Fraser really went above and beyond. Robert, I appreciate the time. Thanks very much for making uh, the contribution. And uh, again, there's there's no you know there's no way forward for some of these people right away other than to take the take the baby steps. But this will be one, um, and and at least it's uh, it's a closer road to closure than the previous solution would have been. Thanks very much for the time. Thank you. Robert Pineo, uh, chair of the litigation practice group at Patterson Law. We turn now to uh, Liberal MP. Uh, in Cumberland, Colchester, Lenora Zan. Uh, she joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Lenora, it's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for making the time. I appreciate it. Good morning and hello, Greg. How are you doing? I, I'm really good. I'm really good. I, I know this is a, you know, I, I won't call it a political victory uh, to some extent, but I, I mentioned earlier um, that uh, that this just feels like it would have been easy, though you'll say it's your job. There would have been some people that, that would have said, well, it's easy to say, hey, we did what we could, but the decision's the decision. A lot of politicians in Nova Scotia and a lot of people, obviously, uh, who, who raised their voices felt, no, we can change this and, and, and get the right get this right and make sure that, that more people can have their voices heard and more information gets to victims and their families. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say this is my job because I actually pushed for an inquiry from the very beginning, um, and I made that very public. So I don't know where that the gentleman who's the lawyer is. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that also. So I'm glad you're addressing I, I have it. No yeah. idea why he said that, but I was the only politician, either federal or or provincial, who actually uh, asked for a public inquiry six weeks after the shooting. I sent uh, a letter, email to the minister of public safety. Uh, Bill Blair requesting a public inquiry on behalf of my constituents and the families of the of the victims. And I then went public with that mm-hmm. and posted it and sent it to all the media. Um, so I did that as soon after the shooting as I felt was right because of the families grieving and because we were waiting for the RCMP to announce anything about their findings because they were doing an investigation and I expected to be honest the province of Nova Scotia to announce uh, a public inquiry so after six weeks when that didn't happen I uh, I went public with my request and then I sent another request uh, about two months a month later on July the 3rd and then another one on July the 26th so that's three times when I did not get any response from the Minister of Public Safety, I, uh, I felt when the announcement had come that it was going to be a review instead of a public inquiry, I continued that request and fight behind the scenes and took it to the Prime Minister, uh, to his office, and had a meeting with uh, the woman who is our Atlantic representative for the Prime Minister's mm. office on Sunday uh, for 90 minutes at my house here in Truro and outlined to him why I felt the public inquiry was the only way to go and why I'd always felt that way and that I was very frustrated that I had not been able to get anywhere with uh, the public safety minister's office or the province. So, um, you know, and within 24 hours there was uh, a, a shift and it was announced that in fact, a public inquiry would be done, which I was very pleased to see. I don't think it would have happened without all the protests, but I think that what people don't understand is that politics are not always done out in the open. It takes a lot of pushing from behind and a lot of work. And I know that after having been in the provincial government um, for 10 years, both in a majority NDP government as a member, as a backbencher, and then as an opposition member for six years. Yeah. So I kind of know the way these things work. And sometimes you have to tack. It's like sailing. You have to tack a little ways in order to be able to then turn back and get that full wind behind your sail so that you can take it to where you actually right. want to go. Lenore Zahn, our guest Liberal MP for uh, Cumberland, Colchester in Nova Scotia. What was the biggest explanation you got as to why uh, Mark Fury wanted to wanted to go 
with the review process. Do you think this was about money? Do you think this was about getting answers more more quickly and concisely? What was it? Why did they decide this in the first place? Well, again, I'm not a provincial. I'm not with the province right now. I'm with the feds now, only mm-hmm. for the last eight months. But when I was in government uh, with the NDP government uh, back in 2009 to 2000, um, well, I guess to 2013, uh, they we had an opportunity here to do a public inquiry about the home for colored children. It was called, which were, which was a place where there had been a lot of abuses and uh, the people who were the survivors of that wanted to have a public inquiry and the government just did not want to have one. Uh, Our premier at the time was a lawyer and the reasons were exactly the same that were given this time around, it will re-traumatize the victims. Right. There will be innocent people who will be dragged into it whose lives may be changed forever. Um, th- those kinds of things. Uh, we, need, we need to have a, a recon- reconciliatory process, these kinds of things. I never believed that from the beginning as a, mm. a member of that government, and I pushed behind the scenes for that one as well and banged my head oftentimes against my, my, my steering wheel of my car in the parking lot going, why won't they listen to me? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to be honest, really damaged th- that government. And that government fell after that. Um, and yeah. I was the only backbencher left standing. Yeah. But, you know, it, 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 who knows why? I think oftentimes it's the bureaucrats trying to tell the government that it'll be too long of a process. It'll be too expensive. It, it will be messy, you know, whatever. I, I don't really care about that stuff. All I care is about the truth and getting the answers to the people and making sure that the, the families of the victims in this particular instance, and in the last one, it was about the, 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 the people who had been children at the home for colored children, yeah, that they yeah. get, that they get the, the, the closures that they need and that they get justice. You're you're caring about the right things, and you're advocating for the right things. I'd say that as well for increased gun control. And uh, take it from yeah. me, I don't want you to give up that fight either. We're tight for time. I want to have you on again as this process continues. Thanks very much for making some time today for us, Lenora. You're so welcome, and thank you very much. Lenora Zan, Member of Parliament for Cumberland Colchester. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.